0: What a, what a blessing. Well, just to, just to sort of ask a random question, how many of you since last Sunday, since being here in church last Sunday, if you were here or maybe if you listened online, um, how, how many of you thought of Jesus specifically as your high priest this week? How many of you actually thought, oh, Jesus, my priest? Anyone actually think that way? Because we know Jesus is Savior, right? As Son of God, as Redeemer. But anyone actually think, Jesus is my priest this past week. No hands went up. Uh, Because we just don't typically do that, do we? We don't really think of Jesus as a high priest. And really, this is the subject matter we find ourselves in the middle of, uh, Jesus as a high priest. In fact, we are talking about Jesus being of 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 a better priestly order than the Levitical priesthood. Um, I think what we're about to look into today is going to be very significant, and hopefully, my, my hope is that from today onwards, you do look more um, at Jesus as your priest because of the priestly functions that he does for us, and, and that will continue on as we go through chapter 8 as well. Uh, but the fact that Jesus is a superior higher priest, that, that is a significant point. Um, his, his priesthood is better which means his sacrifice is better, his sacrifice is better, which means the whole covenant is a better covenant. He is better than all of the Old Testament types and shadows and patterns and symbols. He's better than the Old Testament Levitical law. This has been sort of the whole argument all along. And last week, we looked at an introduction to the new new priesthood. And the question was asked in verse 11. If you just want to look at verse 11 real quick, it said, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek? Why do we need another priesthood if perfection were with the Levitical priesthood? Well, the answer is the first one wasn't perfect. It wasn't. It needed replacing. The priesthood, the law that accompanied it, could not make anybody perfect. So it was not perfect itself. In short, It had no ability to bring people to God. Remember last week, we we began with that discussion that the whole goal is to be be brought into the presence of God. We're separated from him. The law, the Old Testament ceremonial law that accompanied the Levitical priesthood could not do that. So therefore, it has been rejected because of its weakness and its unprofitableness. And then it said in verse 19, on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we do draw near to God. And that's kind of where where we left it in verse 19 last week. So today we're going to pick up where we left off, take a deeper look at the new priesthood. But this is part two, okay? The new priesthood part two. And today we're going to look specifically at the ways in which the new priesthood is superior to the old. So let's read the passage. We're looking at verses 20 to 28. Verse 20, And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, For they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Let's pray. ask the Lord's blessing. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity we have now to to be in your word, your holy word, the very words of God most high. And Lord, we just pray that you would be with us, that you would guide us into truth as we really try to understand these deep concepts about Jesus as our high priest, Lord, and how important that is and what that means for us today as as New Covenant, New Testament believers. So, Lord, just be with us. Guide us into your truth for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Amen. Well, point one, number one. That Jesus is a superior, or the new priesthood is superior, due to the pledge. And that's really what he's picking up here in verse 20. And I'm going to read all 20 to 22 just to recap that section, because it's sort of all one thought. Look at 20 again. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath, by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek, by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Now, he's sort of recapping a little bit. We talked about this uh, a bit before, but back in uh, chapter six, we looked at this. But, but you might remember we recapped uh, Abraham's life. God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham, he moved him from one country to another. He's moving him to the the land of Canaan, and he made a promise to him that that from Abraham, from him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Do you remember that? And, and you might remember Abraham's very old, and they had no children, and his wife was old, and she was past the, the, the age of childbearing. So they, they had no child, so it was very hard for them to understand how all the nations of the earth could be blessed through them since they had no child, but God continued to... Uh, reiterate that he would make this this promise through them and he would stick to this this covenant. And lo and behold, eventually the son of promise came and that was Isaac. And after Isaac was born and he grew into a a nice young man, God appeared to tell him, now I need you to take that that son of promise. I need you to take him up to a certain mountain and I need you to sacrifice him to me. So now, now what do you do? God's made this promise, finally the promise looks like it can be fulfilled through this son Isaac, and now God says, I need you to, I need you to kill him. But Abraham obeyed, he, he took his son, he took some servants, he took wood, he took all the things he needed, he took his son up, up to this mountain, he, he tied him up, he lifted up the knife to, to slay his son, and then he was stopped, you remember, he was stopped from doing that. And we looked at this in chapter 6, because chapter 6 is quoting what took place in Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, this is what God says to him in verse 16. And he said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. Why did God add an oath To his promise. He had made the promise several times before. He even made and established a covenant in Genesis 15. But here he adds to that an oath. We talked about it again in Genesis uh, that, that God swore by an oath. If you look back to chapter 6, verses 16 to 17, we'll just sort of recap what he said there. Look at verse 16. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them, and end of all dispute. Thus, God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Now, there's a lot there, but just to unpack it briefly, he's saying, because men swear by an oath, and they swear by something greater than themselves to sort of confirm their promise. I, I swear on my mother's grave, right? I swear by the gold of the temple. Because they do that, well, God swore. He did the same thing, but he couldn't swear by anyone greater than himself because there's no one greater than God, so he just swore by himself. But um, he accommodated himself to mankind. Man does that to solidify their promise, and so God did that as well. And we're told that he did it to show his immutability or his unchangeable character, the unchangeability of his counsel. He wanted all the world to know that his promise concerning the Messiah was a permanent promise. That was what we talked about back in chapter 16. Well, I showed you then that God didn't only swear back in Genesis 22. He swore somewhere else. He made an oath somewhere else. And he did it here in Psalm 110, verse 4. That's what's being quoted in our passage today. Um, And this is actually the sixth time in this letter But it's the first time that he quotes it in its entirety. The part that he's left off the last five times is the beginning part. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. That's in verse 21 there. The Lord has sworn. So he's made an oath. He's made a pledge and he will not relent. He adds this. I'm also not going to relent. I'm also not going to change my mind. And that's because he's immutable. There's no going back. In other words, that's the point going back on what? On the promise. On the promise that the Messiah would be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So in short, just as God swore not to change his mind regarding the covenant to to Abraham um, and to his people, so God too will not change his mind regarding the promise that the Messiah will be a priest, but he'll be a forever priest. So it's, it's unusual. We don't think about Jesus as priest, but this comes to us today as an oath, as a promise that Jesus will be a priest, but a priest forever. And that priesthood is based on a pledge, on this oath, the pledge that he'll be a priest for eternity. Now the priests of Aaron, the Levitical priests, they never had such a pledge. And that's kind of what he says here. God never swore to Abram. He never swore to Aaron, rather, that the priesthood would be a, a, a permanent thing. They became priests, not by an oath, not by a pledge, but by divine instruction. God instructed them, I need you to be priests. Not, not a promise. In fact, look at this. It comes to us in Exodus 28, verse 1. I think it read it last week, but this is what it says. Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel that he may minister to me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. There it is. That's it. God just one day said, okay, now I want you to take Aaron and all his sons and you're going to be priests. That's it. It was just an instruction. There was no promise. There was no oath of any kind. So they became priests without an oath, but he, we're told, Jesus, with an oath. Do you see that there in verse 21? The one group became priests without, but Jesus, he became a priest with an oath. And Jesus is the of the order of Melchizedek, and his priesthood will never come to an end. It's a forever priesthood. So the result of this pledge is that Jesus has become and this is the part that's great, the guarantor, the guarantee of a better covenant. Look at it in verse 22. By so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Now this is just the fifth time Jesus' name has been used in Hebrews. I told you he uses it very sparingly. It's only 13 times in the whole book. This is only the fifth time it's been used. Other times we've seen that Jesus' name has been used in, in comparison to angels. He's been made a little lower than the angels for a time when he became a man at the incarnation. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus' name was used. He's the only great high priest to pass through the heavens. Jesus' name was used. And then, of course, in referring to Melchizedek, there's only one priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, and that is Jesus back in chapter 6, verse 20. So here he again, he brings up Jesus' name, but it's in relation to a better covenant and the idea that Jesus is a guarantee, a surety. Now that word surety in the Greek is enguos. It's a pledge. It's a guarantee. How, how is Jesus a, a guarantee here? Well, I think the best way to explain it is there's already a wonderful illustration in the Old Testament of what a a guarantee is, or what a surety is. You might remember Joseph's story. Joseph and his brothers, and he's hated by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. Okay. Way down the line, Joseph has been sold into slavery. He goes into Potiphar's house and he goes into jail. Well, after all of that, he, he goes to be the second in command in Egypt. You remember that? And while he's second in command, he, he is able to determine that there's going to be a time of famine. And so he is stocking up food for the Pharaoh. And all the food is in Egypt. But it's not where his family um, is coming from. There's no food there. So Jacob's sons, Judah and Simeon and Reuben, all those, they have no food. So they have to travel to Egypt to get food. They do that. They come to Egypt. They're placed in front of the second in command, who is Joseph, their brother. They don't recognize him. You remember that? And he treats them harshly because he recognizes them. And so he quizzes them a lot about their family. And he even specifically asks about another younger brother. And he says, oh, yeah, we have another younger brother, but he's, he's home. But the other one died, and so there's only the one younger one. And so he does give them food, but he says, next time you come back, you need to bring that brother. Do you remember that? So they all go back home. They eat their food. Eventually, the food runs out. And now it's time to go back. And so Jacob says, you need to go back. And, and so Judah says, okay, Dad, I, I did swear something. To, to the, him, I, I swore that I would bring Benjamin back with me. And remember, Dad's, what did you do that for? And so he is—he's caught in a pickle. He doesn't know what to do. So this is this is what he do does. Judah makes himself the guarantee. He says that to his father in in Genesis forty three nine. He says, "I myself will be surety." There's the same word for him. From my hand you will. Uh, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. So Judah himself makes himself the guarantor. In fact, he does the same to Joseph when he goes back to see uh, Joseph. He does it actually twice. And maybe another illustration is, is uh, when we first bought our first house, Jody and I. We, weren't, we didn't have a lot of money, and you buy a big purchase sometimes, the, 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 you know, the people lending money, they want to know that you've, you know, you're going to be good for it, Right? Sometimes you have to get a co-signer. You've got to get a guarantor. So Jody's parents helped with that. They put their names on the deed as well. They co-signed so that we could could get this house. And what that is saying is if we failed to pay, well, then Jody's parents, they they would be the ones that they would go to for the pay. So think about this. This beautifully illustrates the role of Jesus. He's not simply the mediator Of a new covenant. He's not just the priest who speaks between God and man, all right? He's the guarantor. He's the co-signer of a better covenant. The old covenant had a pretty great mediator, didn't it? Moses. Moses, the great hero of, of the faith. But there was no guarantor for the people's side of the covenant. If they blew it, they blew it, and it was lost. They were cut off, right? Out they go. And that's why they continually failed over and over again. But Jesus comes to the office of priest. He comes to the office of priest through a pledge. And he is our guarantor. He is our co-signer. It's a better covenant because it depends on what Jesus did, not on what we do. Isn't that amazing? And so Jesus, it's a better covenant all around. And this word better comes to us again. This is a theme of the of the whole book. We're going to see better all over the... Uh, place. We've seen better things um, earlier on in chapter 6 that accompany salvation. That makes sense because you don't get better things uh, that accompany salvation from the Old Covenant. The better things come to us in the New. A better hope has been explained to us recently in chapter 7, verse 19, right? Which allows us to draw near to God. The Levitical system did not bring anyone to God. And here, Jesus is a surety or a guarantee of a better covenant. It's better because he is the guarantee, and he comes to us by a pledge. None of the other priests came uh, to, to, to man, came to Israel through any kind of an oath or promise or pledge. He says, you're just going to be priests. But also, God's, he's, he can guarantee God's promises to us because they weren't permanent. In the Levitical priesthood. They were men. They died. But Jesus is permanent. And that's really the second point. He is superior, not just because of the pledge, but he's superior due to permanence. Now look at verse 23. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. Well, that's obvious. There were many priests. There were many, many, many priests throughout um, the, the years. But none of them could serve indefinitely because all of them died. They had to pass on their ministry to another. They succeeded each other. Uh, and this reveals the inherent weakness that was spoken of back in, in verse 18. Just look at 18 again, real quick. It says, For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former covenant, or sorry, commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. You see that? The former commandment. The former commandment was the sacrificial, the ceremonial law concerning the priesthood. That, with all of its external practices, that's been rejected. It's been annulled. The old priesthood was rejected because it was weak. It means it, it, it could not It could reveal sin. It could temporarily cover sin, but it couldn't remove it. And it was unprofitable or useless. It gave no real hope. It provided no real forgiveness and had no ability to bring people into the presence of God. And the primary reason for this is because the Levitical priesthood was made up of men who die. They die. Thus, it was inherently temporary. And you know what? I think God gave a graphic demonstration of this in the Old Testament as well. And I'd like to show you this because I think it's really interesting. It's in Numbers chapter 20. So keep your marker here. But I want to take you to Numbers chapter 20 to to, to show you this. In Numbers chapter 20, Aaron, who is the high priest, is about to die. He's going to die, and he is not going to go into the promised land. Now, most of us are aware that Moses doesn't go into the promised land, but Aaron also doesn't go into the promised land. And in chapter 20 of of Numbers, beginning in verse 23, I just read through this, it, it, it explains this. And this is very important. Now look at this in verse 23. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people. For he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. So that's why Moses won't enter. He rebelled against God. God told him to, uh, to, 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 speak, or, yeah, to, to speak to the rock, and he hid it instead. And So he won't be able to go to the promised land. Well, either will Aaron. And then it says in verse 25, Take Aaron and Eleazar his son. Now, this is important. Okay, this is the heir. And bring them up to Mount Hor. And strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son, for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. So Moses and Aaron and Eleazar go up, but only Moses and Eleazar come down. Now, when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. Now, I need you to see something here. Notice that the transfer of the garments from Aaron to Eleazar was done in the sight of all the congregation. They saw the transfer taking place. They also saw that the congreg- that, that, that that Aaron was dead that the next one had come. And this all happened when? Before they entered the promised land. God is graphically showing something here. Your priests are going to die. They're just men. And I want you to see this transfer happening from one to the other before they come into the promised land. Now, the same thing happens to Moses. Moses goes up on a mountain and dies before they enter the promised land. Now, why is all this important? I think God was impressing upon the people the fact that the priesthood was a dying one. But not just that. Um, Aaron and Moses, both of them died. So neither the priesthood associated with Aaron nor the law associated with Moses could bring anybody into the promised land. Neither one of those things. It was temporary. It could not bring salvation. Now, contrast that with the priesthood of Jesus. And go back to our passage in Hebrews and look at verse 24. But he, speaking of Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. He continues forever. Why? Well, because, because he continues forever, then his priesthood obviously is going to go forever. It's unchangeable. And this word is only used here in the New Testament, but it means it cannot be changed. Well, yeah, it's unchangeable. No, no. I'm telling you that because it it, it doesn't mean that something that will not be changed. It cannot be changed. It can't be changed. Therefore, it's not likely to pass to another uh, priest. It's going to be Jesus. Why can't it change? Because Jesus doesn't change. (laughs) He's immutable. He's the son of God. He continues forever. Death couldn't hold him. And it's been calculated that there have been 84 priests who served from Aaron all the way to the uh, destruction of the temple in AD 70. I don't know how accurate that is. And I mean high priests, okay? 84 high priests. There's many, many more small, younger, uh, other priests, but the high priests. So there's a lot of changing of the priesthood, a lot of changing of the priesthood over the years, but there's none of that happening with Jesus. Why? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging. Now, what does all this mean for us? What, why, why is this so important? Because he's a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, this takes us, think of that, keep that in your head, to one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture based upon the truth of Jesus' permanent priesthood. It's verse 25. Look at this verse. Therefore, because all those things are true, therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Because these things are true, he's saying, because Jesus became a priest by an oath, by a pledge, a pledge that was promised way back by King David, Psalm 110 verse 4, that he would be a priest forever, because those things are true, then he is able to save to the uttermost. What are, what are all these things? I want to unpack this verse. This verse has amazing, amazing truths. The first thing I want you to see is that through Jesus, we have complete salvation. Make sure you mark that down, because I've met and talked with a lot of people who say they understand that we are saved, completely saved, but then there's doubts. Now listen, doubt is okay. Doubts, doubt happens. We, we doubt as humans. We, we come into situations and we begin to doubt. I, I, I understand that, so I'm not trying to condemn people for doubt. What we don't want to go to is areas of unbelief areas that Jesus hasn't saved us completely. That is something else that has to happen. There is something lacking, something I must do, something I must not have done, something I must not have said. But that is not true. Jesus offers complete salvation. Notice this word uttermost. He saves to the uttermost. "Pantelase" is the word. It means completely or perfectly to go in, in, in line with the the Hebrew's use of the, the perfection that's being used. Now, this word, pantele, says you only use one other place in all the New Testament. It's Luke 13, 11, and it's that woman who was bent over with the spirit of infirmity. Do you remember that? She couldn't straighten up all the way. She couldn't straighten up completely. That's the word. But someone was able to straighten her completely. That was Jesus. The same word is used here. When it comes to salvation, Jesus saves completely perfectly, to the uttermost. Now, a lot of people misread this and say, I've been saved from the uttermost. That's not what it's saying. It's not, you you weren't saved from the uttermost. You were saved to the uttermost, to it. You were saved forever. You were saved to completion. You were saved to perfection. That's what that means. It's incredible. Colossians 2 Verses 9 to 10, it says this, For in him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. You're complete in him. It means there's nothing lacking. You have all complete salvation. In fact, I think this verse gives us several elements of salvation. They're highlighted here, and I want to break them down a little bit further. First, notice the power of salvation. When we're talking about complete salvation, what are we talking about? Well, look at the power of salvation. I love it. Verse 25, therefore, three words, he is able. He is able. Dunamai, capable, powerful. He is able to do it. None of the other priests were able to save anyone, either partially or temporarily. The sacrifices partially temporarily covered sin, but it was never completely removed. No one was ever completely saved, but through Jesus we are. We can have complete salvation, but it's only through him. He is able. And that's why when the church began, the early church, and the apostles went out and they started preaching the gospel, it was all about Jesus. This doesn't come from my mouth, they were saying. It comes from Jesus, I love Peter, what he says in Acts 4.12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's through Jesus. He's the only one that's able to save anyone. Salvation doesn't come to men by any other means. Joseph Smith can't give you that salvation. Buddha can't give you that salvation. They can't save you to the uttermost. Muhammad can't save you to the uttermost, and you can't save you to the uttermost. It's only Jesus, and it's complete salvation. If man tried to do it, we'll never feel like it'd be complete. We will always feel lacking, always, because we just can't measure up. But Jesus is able to save completely to the uttermost. Incredible. The power of salvation is him. He is able, and only him. Notice also the nature of salvation. Come to God. That's the nature. We we come to him. The essence of salvation is being able to come to to God, to be drawn into his his presence. That's why he brought that up in verse 19. Look look at that again in verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The better hope is is how we can come to God. There's no other way. The better hope is, is Jesus. And it's through that better hope In which we draw near to Him. True fellowship with God only comes through Jesus. Even those of us who who went through the training for counseling for the Franklin Graham event, and this has been a, 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 I guess a, 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 method of salvation, you know, gospel sharing for a long time. But the bridge, right? The bridge. Jesus is here, and 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 we need to get to him. We need to get to God, and the only way is, is Jesus. He's the bridge. That was like the, the picture. We have to get to God. Why? We're separated from him. Sin separates us. Jesus took our sins upon his own body when he died on our behalf on that cross, and because he did that, he has provided a bridge, a way to God. So our sin has been dealt with, and it's being dealt with. Mark mentioned the three areas, past, present, and and future. And I want to make sure you understand that when we speak of a complete salvation, we are speaking of past, present, and future. We have been freed from sin's guilt in the past. That's what haunts so many people. We've been freed from the, the guilt of the sins of the past. Mark mentioned a lot of sins of the past, but he stands in victory today because he's been freed from the guilt of those sins. He's not guilty for those things. So many people are burdened in this life because they still carry the guilt. That's because they don't know Christ, that He can actually save from your past. And Hebrews 9 is going to elaborate on this idea of being freed from the guilt. And in Hebrews 9, he, co- he compares the sacrifice of the priest with the sacrifice of, of Jesus. And the conclusion was that the, the conscience was never dealt with in the Levitical priesthood, it never dealt with the, the guilt. But Hebrews 9, 14, it it speaks of this. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We've been freed from sin's guilt. That is the past. But we're also freed here in the present, and we're freed from sin's power, which is an amazing thing. Folks, if you're a believer in Christ today, sin has no power over you. Now, I'm not saying that you don't sin. We're going to get there. I'm talking about power, dominion. Sin does not have that over you, but it did. You were under the power of sin. You were under the dominion of sin, meaning you did whatever sin told you to do. You did what the flesh guided you to do. You just did that because you were under its power. But when you read Romans 6, this is what the wonderful news of Romans is all about. You're freed from that. You're no longer slaves of that. Look at Romans 6, uh, verses 6 to 7. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. So yes, we still have sin, but we've been freed from the, the, the power of sin, its dominion which is the word he uses a few verses later in verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. That's interesting, isn't it? But even under law, even under law, sin had dominion over you. But you're no longer under law. Now you're under grace, this new covenant, this better covenant of which Jesus is a guarantor. Amazing. Sin does not have this power over you. But also there's a future aspect because we still have sin present, one day we will be freed from sin's presence. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yes, Lord. It's present. It's in our flesh. It's in our bodies. But listen, one day we're going to receive new glorified bodies, free from indwelling sin, created to worship God and to be in his presence. Amen. And Paul describes those bodies in First Corinthians 15. We went through it you know, a, a while back, but just look at, look at what he speaks of here in, in, in terms of this. First Corinthians 15:54. "So when this corruptible body has put on incorruption, and this immortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, "Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin." And the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing to know that not only are we freed from the power of sin today, but one day there will be no presence of sin. Can you even imagine that? It's hard to imagine that because our, our, our thoughts are always so infiltrated with sinful things, sinful tendencies, but one day sinless. Because we're told that when we see Jesus, we're going to be as he is. We're going to be like him. Amazing. One other aspect of salvation comes to us from this passage. I want you to notice the objects of salvation. Notice salvation, and this is very important. It only comes to those who come to God through him. The objects of salvation are not to all. Salvation doesn't come to all. People die unsaved. Now, I'm not saying salvation is an offer to all. It's offered to all. It doesn't come to all. It comes to all who come to him. That is who salvation comes to. You must come to God through him. That is how it works. Jesus is the only mediator. He is the guarantee. We must come to Christ, uh, come to God, and only through Christ. But if we come, we're promised that he won't Cast us away. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So salvation is it's open, folks. It's available to all, um, but salvation will only come to those who come. He's able to save all, but not all will be saved. And that is a tragic truth, isn't it? We want all to be saved. He doesn't will that all should uh, perish, but all should come to Christ. It's as if we're on a sinking ship, aren't we? And, and, and Jesus is the lifeboat. And so God isn't sending people to hell. They're just refusing to get on the boat. <laughs> so Jesus has a perfect priesthood because it's permanent. He's able to provide a permanent or complete salvation. But he's also one other aspect of salvation uh, well, one other aspect of what, uh, what he comes to us here is, is continual intercession. Do you see it there in our verse? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's the second half of verse 25. He always lives to make intercession for them. He's permanent. Remember, he, he lives forever. Now, the high priest could intercede for a man as well, but he can only do that as long as he lived or until he reached 50, right? and then he was done. But he was replaced by another. But now there is only one mediator because only Jesus continually intercedes for us. Paul talks about this to Timothy in 1 Timothy two five. He says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men. It's the man Christ Jesus. There's one, one mediator. Now, you need to understand something as we look at this real quick. The context of all this is salvation, right? He's able to save. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So you might be thinking, then why do I need an intercessor if I'm saved? Now, we always have a high priest. That's his point. We always have an advocate who intercedes for us before the Father. Why? Because we still sin. We still sin. And when we sin, this is the amazing thing, Jesus intercedes for us. He goes, oh, Father, that, one, that one's sins are forgiven. Oh, that one's on my behalf. My sacrifices have covered that one. He's an advocate. He's always there at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he's continually interceding for you. Did you see the connection here? Many people doubt why, because they sin, which is why we're, we're so, you know, encouraged, right? And exhorted to not sin because it's the doubt we create in our own minds. But there shouldn't be doubt because we have a continual priest who is constantly there to intercede for us to say, that one has been covered I've paid the penalty for him or for her. This is what John talks about in 1 John 2.1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. That's what scripture, we, I don't want you to sin. I write these things so you won't sin. But, but if you sin, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Isn't that a wonderful news? If you sin, which you do and I do, we sin, you have an eternal advocate Now, we've seen Jesus presented as our high priest a couple other times in Hebrews. Um, One of those times, well, they both have to do with understanding our weaknesses, helping us through temptation. Back in chapter 2, verses 17 18, we saw that, and in chapter 4, verse 15. But that's not the primary role of the priest that's in view here. It's a part of it, but it's not the primary role. Salvation that comes through Christ involves four things. His death, his resurrection, his ascension— and his intercession. All four of those things must be happening. And they do. Because he continues forever. And Romans 8.34 speaks of this. You see all four of those things in this one verse. Who is he who condemns? Can you be condemned? No, because of these four things. It's Christ who died. Furthermore, who's risen. Is at the right hand of God. Ascended. And is making intercession for us. You see all four things there? Can you be condemned? No, because of those four things. Those four things are true. He died. He rose, he's ascended, and he intercedes. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot be condemned. Because of the continual intercessory work of Christ, because he lives forever, I will be presented faultless before God, and you too. We read Jude 24 all the time as a benediction. Do you ever really listen to the words of Jude 24? Listen to it. Jude 1, 24. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Who is that? That's Jesus. He is able to do that. He will present you faultless. So this is, this is an, indeed a, a superior priesthood, isn't it? And it's due to the pledge and it's due to the permanence. And because it's permanent, we have complete salvation in Jesus and continual intercession by Jesus. Now, one final point, and we'll wrap it up with these last few verses. He is superior due to his perfection. Look at verse 26 for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy harmless undefiled separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens it's fitting or it's proper it's proper that Jesus be our high priest because he matches exactly what we need he's holy i'm not he we need perfection folks I always tell you, the reason I know the Bible is true because the standard is perfection. You've got to be perfect, and no one is. But that's the standard. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? We did the King's speech a while back. We went through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. The whole sermon is meant to lead us to an overpowering sense of spiritual bankruptcy. I have nothing to offer, which is why he ends with Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And you should walk away going, who can be perfect? Well, we can't be. No one can be perfect, but we have a perfect high priest. And notice the words, he's holy. In relationship to God, he's holy. That's not so with us, and nor was it the case of any high priest. They were not holy. Um, They had to go offer sacrifices. They weren't holy, but Jesus was holy. And even the demon-possessed man, remember that, recognized Jesus was holy. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. He's harmless. Now, that's in relationship to others. He's harmless. He's innocent. He's free from fraud, free from guile. That was not the case with many high priests, by the way. You look at a lot of high priests, and they were, were, well, think about Caiaphas and, and Annas. They tried Jesus illegally, trying to put him to death. Certainly, they weren't harmless. Well, Jesus wronged no man. He harmed no man. And even those who harmed him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He's harmless. He's undefiled. That's relationship to himself. Without sin, that's why he could be the spotless, sacrificial lamb. You know, Peter tells us we weren't redeemed with silver and gold and things like that. But 1 Peter 1, 19, with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We were saved by his blood. He's also separate from sinners. He has no sin nature by which he could commit sin. We do. We have sin nature. And because of all of these things, he has become higher than the heavens. Amazing. So because of those things, he doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself. Look at verse 27. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. You know, if a priest sin, he had to uh, offer a sacrifice for himself. And we see these in Leviticus 4.3. You can see this verse, Leviticus 4.3. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish, as a sin offering. Now, that could be a daily thing. If you were a priest and you sinned, well, back you go with your bull. You got to offer this thing, right? And just keep doing that over and over again. And then, then you had the, the annual one on the day of, of atonement. The high priest had to offer sacrifices for himself and the people, and you see this in Leviticus 9. Moses said to Aaron, go to the altar, offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself. Why did you have to do all this? Because because they're sin, sinners, and they have sin nature. But look at the description of Christ. He's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He's become higher than the heavens. He needs no sacrifice. Instead, he offered up himself. Because he was perfect, he was able to make the sacrifice. And notice that he did it once for all in one moment, in one time, and one time only, Jesus offered up himself. It had to be one time somewhere for God to enter time who exists outside of time. He had to enter time somewhere. And that one time he did it. Jesus entered time, space, came as a man, and he offered himself up as a sacrifice for sins. He doesn't have to do it again. It was once for all. And the once for all idea is a a key theme in Hebrews. You see it in 9, 12 as well, related to the sacrifice. Look at it. Not with blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place. And here it is, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You see it again in chapter 10, verse 10. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. So, one-time sacrifice. And then this final verse really bookends the entire argument perfectly. Look at verse 28. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. Yeah, they're, they're weak. The Old Testament law concerning priests, it appointed men based on their, their heritage, not on their character. Um, and they were weak because they, they died. They were sinners and they, they, they died. But, go on, look at what it says in the rest of 28. But the word of the oath which came after the law, appoints the Son, who has been perfected forever. God's oath, that pledge that we looked at in Psalm 110, 4, that came after the law, and it appoints Jesus as a superior high priest because he's a perfect and permanent one. The Levitical priesthood, that was imperfect. We looked at that in verse 11. But with the new priesthood, we finally finally have perfection. What's this all mean? This means this. You don't need to go anywhere else to have your sins forgiven. Do you want to know the way to heaven? Do you want to have access to God? There's only one. There's only one way because there's only one high priest. It's through the perfect, the sinless high priest who sits at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for us. Has Christ indeed saved you from your sins? Do you want assurance of that? Look back at that verse of 25. It's given to you there. He is able You can count on your salvation because it's complete. And we're going to sing a song I requested to sing as the closing song. It's called Christ is Able to Save. And I just want you to listen to these lyrics. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy. Come, ye wounded, weak and worn. There's a harbor for the broken where the hopeless are reborn. Come, ye lost, afraid, forgotten. Let your wandering souls find rest. At your heart's door, he is knocking. For you, his precious blood was shed. And here's the chorus. He is able. He is able. Christ is able still to save. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, and sing to him our song of praise. Only Christ is able. Amen? Amen. Let me pray, and then we'll sing that song together. God, thank you so much for your word to us, Lord, the reminder that Christ is able to save to the uttermost, to completion, to perfection. We have complete salvation through the only perfect and permanent high priest that ever was, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you so much. I know we don't think of Jesus as a, as a priest so much these days. In fact, maybe we sort of try to distance ourselves from that kind of a, a picture, but, but how important it is to see the, the priestly function of our Savior, particularly to understand that, Jesus, you intercede for us even today. Even as I sin I fail you, you never fail me. You are faithful to me. To go to the Father on my behalf, to intercede for me when I don't even know what to say to the Father, you do it. Because the salvation you have given me is complete. It is a finished work. What an amazing truth. We thank you for these truths you've given us today. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us and sing this wonderful song together? Christ is able to save.